Chapter 13, Opposition to the Messianic Kingdom. Distinguished voices in the churches sometimes confess to their discomfort about some aspects of Jesus' teaching. J.B. Phillips speaks of, quote, the apocalyptic passages in Luke, which frankly I find a bit of an embarrassment. That's from J.B. Phillips' book, Plain Christianity, written in 1954. Georgia Harkness, writing about the kingdom of God, is certain that Jesus cannot have spoken the words attributed to him in Luke 19, verse 27, which reads, Bring my enemies here and slay them in my presence. That's from Georgia Harkness's book, Understanding the Kingdom of God, written in 1974. The apocalyptic Jesus has, as we see from these quotes, for a long time been unwelcome in the church bearing his name. Harkness speaks of, quote, the difficulty encountered by even his closest disciples to grasp his message. When they came together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? The Davidic Messiah was still their dream. At work in such a commentary, I maintain, is a deep-rooted prejudice against the Messiah of the New Testament. Georgia Harkness goes on to say, quote, Jesus apparently thought that it was useless to argue with them, for he told them that it was not for them to know the times or the seasons fixed by the Father's authority. But these surmisings of Georgia Harkness do not appear in the text at all. Jesus positively did not correct their Davidic messianism, which they had learned, of course, in his company. Theology has a tragic history of trying to get rid of the teachings of Jesus, which it does not like. Its animosity to Jesus stems from the fact that it has inherited a non-apocalyptic tradition dating from the time when the essentially Jewish framework of all that Jesus said was discarded by uncomprehending Gentiles. Paul would not have allowed this departure from Messiah's gospel to have happened without the strongest protest. He painstakingly instructs the Gentiles at Rome and in Galatia in the detail of the Abrahamic basis of the Christian gospel. He did not excuse the Gentiles from the task of gaining a thorough understanding of the Hebrew roots of the gospel. He never departed during the whole of his career from the apocalyptic future kingdom message which he preached everywhere. The same certainly cannot be said of historic Christianity in which the kingdom conceived of as a revolutionary message about God's intention to restore sovereignty to the earth at the return of Jesus has been conspicuous by its absence. There are clear indications 
in the theological literature of a desire to keep the historical Jesus and his apocalyptic message at arm's length. When this happens, the gospel is jeopardized. The goal of Christianity is transformed into a vague hope of, quote, heaven, instead of a passionate longing for peace and prosperity in the messianic kingdom on earth. A shrewd observer of the damage which has occurred to biblical faith observed that, and I quote, the shift from apocalyptic to other forms of thought does indeed constitute something like a, quote, fall of Christendom. It was a fall from the apocalyptic world of early Christianity to platonic categories of thought. The surrender of apocalyptic thought forms produced an alienation of Christianity from its original Jewish matrix, with the result that the messianic expectations of Judaism evoked by God's promises to Israel, were diverted into non-apocalyptic Christology. That's a quotation from J.C. Becker in his book Paul's Apocalyptic Gospel, The Coming Triumph of God, written in 1982. A systematic avoidance of the gospel of the kingdom Close inspection of the writings of modern theologians uncovers a deep-seated desire on their part to be rid of the uncomfortable gospel as Jesus proclaimed it. The Jewishness of Jesus and the Apostles' message is the obvious cause of offense. Modern man, says one immensely powerful school of thinking, will not tolerate teaching about a divine intervention to change the course of human history. That part of the teaching of the Bible is unfit, it is said, for audiences in the scientific age. Yet there's much that's good in the gospel, so the argument runs. We need to present the message stripped of its regrettable Jewish clothing. To use the technical term, we must demythologize it, remove it from its Hebrew framework, and place it in the vastly superior atmosphere of contemporary philosophy, and in this way it will be palatable. What needs to be pointed out here is that the it of the gospel after it has been put through the ringer of modern theological theory, is scarcely the message as Jesus gave it. Nor is Jesus any longer the messenger. He has been superseded, though his name remains on the expurgated package thought suitable for contemporary audiences. The process by which Jesus' gospel of the kingdom was transformed worked like this. Theologians have argued that the Jewish apocalyptic and national political elements of Jesus' preaching were merely the Jewish 
so-called husk, containing the valuable kernel of abiding truth. Once the husk was removed, there remained a timeless message which can appeal to every generation. In this way, the embarrassment, so-called, of believing in a messianic kingdom which never arrived can be smoothed over by turning the kingdom into the church and its unobjectionable religious message. For centuries, the illusion was maintained. Typical of this point of view are the words of a theologian writing in 1913. I quote, The apocalyptic ideas and beliefs in which the great word of Jesus was embodied are, after all, of transitory significance. Not inaptly, it is said of messianism that it was the, quote, nationalistic and contemporaneous encasement of the life work of Jesus, which has been long since riddled and overturned in the process of historical development. Who today regards it as the characteristic mark of Jesus that he claimed to be the Messiah of the Jews? That's a quotation from H.L. Jackson, The Eschatology of Jesus, written in 1913. This immensely influential school of thought succeeded in, quote, dumping the unwanted Jewishness of Jesus, dismissing his messianic gospel as transitory and obsolete. A theological bombshell. It was in the 19th century that theology awoke to the recognition that Jesus was a Jew with a Jewish message for all mankind. I quote from John 4.22, which states that salvation is of the Jews. A book of only 67 pages by a German theologian, this was Johannes Weiss in his book Jesus' Proclamation of the Kingdom of God, written in 1971. That book proved to be a theological bombshell when it pointed to unarguable evidence for Jesus' belief in an objective, apocalyptic, messianic kingdom of the future. Such an idea was revolutionary, since it had been traditional to think of the kingdom as a religious experience or a moral force working to improve society. The new and shocking understanding that Jesus was in the best Jewish prophetic and apocalyptic tradition forced scholars of the Bible to deal with a difficult situation, not least the possibility of having to admit that the church had been misreading its own documents and misinterpreting its own founder. Paradoxically, those who saw that Jesus had been the bearer of the news of the coming apocalyptic kingdom did not suggest that such a gospel was appropriate for the church now. 
Albert Schweitzer, whose independent investigation led him to see that Jesus was not a, quote, liberal theologian, but rather a preacher of a future apocalyptic kingdom. He himself was unable to embrace such a gospel as the object of faith. Both Johannes Weiss and Albert Schweitzer were scholars, as someone has said, who did not belong to their own school of thought. Quite astonishingly, they deemed it, quote, better to cling to the modernized ethical construction of Jesus' message, although it rests on a misunderstanding, than try to retain Jesus' antiquated eschatological ideas. That's from the book Christian Dogmatics, edited by Karl Braten and Robert Jensen, written in 1984. Avoidance, then, of the awkward Jewishness of Jesus' gospel was achieved by variations of the same, quote, husk and kernel theory. Jesus must be stripped of his local Jewish garb and made respectable for modern man. Bultmann's theory of, quote, demythologizing arrives at the same goal by a similar method. What counts for Bultmann is the permanent call to decision in Jesus' message. The Jewish framework, according to Bultmann, can be dispensed with as the relic of a primitive worldview which we have outgrown. In England, the famous C.H. Dodd proposed the extraordinary theory that Jesus spoke only of the presence of the kingdom and not of any future cataclysmic manifestation by which a new age would be introduced. Dodd was confident with his theory of, quote, realized eschatology, that the early church must be blamed for reverting to the old so-called Jewish concept of a future kingdom and of Jesus as the Messiah destined to, quote, come in the clouds with power and great glory. It must be said that all attempts to separate Jesus from his Jewish apocalyptic background and teaching are doomed to fail. It would be much more honest if the church were to say plainly, quote, we reject Jesus, rather than affirming that we accept him, but only on condition that he give up his unfortunate so-called messianic insistence that the kingdom is going to enter history in the future as a world event for which the church of every generation is to prepare with solemn urgency. Christianity, divorced from its prophetic apocalyptic framework, is a pale reflection of the faith of the Bible. And it seems that the Protestant claim to be following Scripture is an empty boast as long as theology feels free to interpret away whatever is deemed unwanted and unsuitable. 
As one observer of the church's method of dealing with the kingdom of God observes, and I quote, Analysis of the precise character of the eschatological beliefs of Jesus and the early communities has been complicated by a high degree of semantic confusion, if not obfuscation. There can be no doubt that Jesus and the evangelists looked for the future actualization of the decisive last events, the coming or manifestation of the Son of Man, the judgment of the living, and the coming of the kingdom or the coming age. That this certainty has played but little part in contemporary exegesis and theology can be attributed primarily to the dogmatic or philosophical interests or rather aversions of the so-called doers of exegesis and theology. It is only quite recently that these, quote, futuristic beliefs are coming to be recognized as something other than a primitive Jewish and early Christian absurdity to be disposed of quickly and, if possible, quietly. That's a quotation from Richard Hyers, The Kingdom of God in the Synoptic Tradition, written in 1970. Little does the average churchgoer know of what has been happening behind the scenes in the halls of theology, in which his leader most probably has received his official training. All students of the Bible recognize that God appointed different, quote, dispensations or arrangements for different periods of history. The Mosaic dispensation, for example, made demands on the faithful different from those required under the New Testament gospel. But, quote, dispensationalism goes much further. It maintains that the gospel of the kingdom was preached by Jesus to Jews only until they refused the offer of the kingdom, whereupon a different gospel, the gospel of grace, was introduced by Paul. The theory then holds that the gospel of the kingdom will be reinstated seven years before the return of Christ, a time when, according also to dispensationalism, the church will have been removed from the earth by the so-called pre-tribulation rapture. I note that Jesus spoke about gathering the elect Christians after, as to say, post the tribulation. Matthew 24, verses 29 to 31. The elect, of course, are the Christians. See Matthew 22, verse 14, where the word chosen represents the same Greek word elect. Jesus also urged his followers to expect their redemption after the cataclysmic events leading to the end of the age. Luke 21, verse 28. Since Jesus instructed his followers to quote, flee to the hills at the onset of the tribulation, it should be quite obvious 
that he had no departure to heaven in mind. Paul expected Christians to have to survive until the public manifestation of Jesus in power and glory. 2 Thessalonians 1 verses 7 to 9. Paul expressly warned against any system which taught that Christians would be gathered together before the appearance of the Antichrist. For that fact, see 2 Thessalonians 2, 1-4. The dispensationalist so-called system has been forced upon the text of Scripture in the interest of a theory alien to the Bible. As we've pointed out, Luke went to great lengths to show that Paul's gospel was not different from that of Jesus. Both men preached the gospel about the kingdom. You'll find that fact established by Luke 4 and verse 43 and so on in the teaching of Jesus. And then in Acts 19 verse 8, Acts 20 verse 25, and Acts 28 verses 23 and 31. Paul, contrary to dispensationalism, knew nothing about a difference between the gospel of grace in Acts 20 verse 24 and, quote, preaching the kingdom in Acts 20 verse 25. He deliberately equates these two gospel messages, preaching the kingdom and preaching the gospel of grace. As F.F. F. Bruce rightly says, I quote, it is evident from a comparison of Acts 20 verse 24 with the next verse that the preaching of the gospel of grace is identical with the proclamation of the kingdom. As from F.F. F. Bruce's commentary on Acts, written in 1952. This incontrovertible evidence is flatly contradicted by contemporary dispensationalism. Dr. Owen Lutzer of Moody Church Radio Ministries states, quote, I believe that the gospel of the kingdom is different from the gospel of the grace of God. The gospel of the grace of God has nothing to do with the kingdom per se. That's from correspondence with me in 1996. But this confusing of the one saving gospel was learned from tradition, unexamined, and not from the Bible. By positing, quote, two forms of the gospel, dispensationalists have invented a most unfortunate distinction which does not exist in the scriptural text. Dispensationalism formally cancels the gospel as Jesus preached it. Could the church have suffered a greater disaster than this systematic curtailing of Jesus' own gospel preaching? A.C. Gabeline was a leading exponent of the dispensationalist divided gospel theory. Referring to Jesus' words 
in Matthew 24, verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world to all the nations. Gabelan wrote, I quote, The preaching which is mentioned is that of the gospel of the kingdom. But that gospel is not now preached, for we preach the gospel of grace. With the stoning of Stephen, the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom ceased. Another gospel was preached. The Lord gave it to the great apostle, and Paul calls the gospel my gospel. It's the gospel of God's free grace to all who believe, the gospel of the glory of God. Now, during the time that the kingdom was preached to be at hand, the gospel of grace was not heard. And during the time the gospel of grace is preached, the gospel of the kingdom is not preached. That's from the Olivet Discourse book by Gabelin, written in 1969. By this extraordinary exegetical blunder, Jesus' Christian gospel of the kingdom was ruled out of court, dismissed as suspended, and decreed impermissible for the present time. The situation would seem to call for a profound repentance and the reinstatement of Jesus' full gospel at the heart of evangelism. Can there be such a thing as evangelism which does not hold in highest honor and emphasis the very gospel heralded by Jesus and mandated by the Great Commission until the end of the age? If Paul had in fact preached, as Gabeline says, another gospel, he would have put himself under his own curse in Galatians 1 verses 8 and 9. He would have been in violation of Jesus' instruction that his, Jesus' teachings, were to go to the entire world. The article on, quote, gospel in Anger's Dictionary of the Bible represents the same common dispensationalist tendency to bypass the gospel as Jesus preached it. This kind of thinking about the gospel and salvation has had an immense influence, particularly in America, but its effects are felt throughout the evangelical world. I note now this quotation from Anger's Dictionary of the Bible. Forms of the gospel to be differentiated. Many Bible teachers make a distinction in the following. One, the gospel of the kingdom, which is the good news that God's purpose is to establish an earthly mediatorial kingdom in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. 2 Samuel 7 verse 16. Two proclamations of the gospel of the kingdom are mentioned. One past, beginning with the ministry of John the Baptist, carried on by our Lord and his disciples, and ending with the Jewish rejection of the Messiah. The other preaching is yet future. Matthew 24, verse 14, during the Great Tribulation and heralding 
the second advent of the king. And then the second form of the gospel, according to Unger's Dictionary of the Bible, the gospel of God's grace, the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ as provided by our Lord and preached by his disciples. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 4. That's from Unger's Dictionary of the Bible, written in 1969. The tragic suppression of the gospel of the kingdom is evident in the New Schofield Reference Bible at Revelation 14, verse 6. The system of gospel definition described in this note has affected the entirety of evangelical presentation of salvation. Even where Schofield is not specifically recognized, Schofield begins by defining the saving gospel as the gospel of the grace of God, which he maintains is confined to facts about the death and resurrection of Jesus. Schofield then goes on to speak of, quote, another aspect of the good news, which he calls the gospel of the kingdom. We are informed that Christ preached this gospel of the kingdom at his first coming, and, and I quote, it will be proclaimed during the Great Tribulation. Schofield thus banishes the gospel of the kingdom from the present message of salvation by stating that the Christian gospel now is only about Jesus' atoning death and his resurrection. In this way, Jesus is cut off from his own gospel preaching. We may well observe that Satan's master trick is to separate Jesus from his teaching. One may indeed proclaim, quote, Jesus with all earnestness, but is the real Jesus made known apart from his complete gospel and teaching? Jesus well knew the danger of preaching, quote, faith in Jesus without actually telling the public about the, quote, words of Jesus. Only those whose faith is founded on the rock foundation of the teachings or gospel of Jesus are on solid ground. See Matthew 7, verses 24 to 27, and Mark 8, verses 35 to 38, and see the whole gospel of John with its constant insistence on the word or words or teaching of Jesus. Uncertainty about the Christian gospel is not surprising when such evident misreading of the Bible is built into a system with a massive influence in pulpits and Christian literature. Surely the words of Paul in Acts 20 verses 24 and 25 should banish the artificial distinction proposed by the Bible Dictionary and the Schofield Bible. Paul looked back on his career 
and noted that he had, quote, finished his course, the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God to all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom. Clearly, there is no difference between the gospel of grace and the gospel of the kingdom. It is true, of course, that Jesus did not initially preach his resurrection as part of the gospel. The death and resurrection of Jesus were later critical elements in the proclamation of Paul. They did not, however, replace the preaching of the kingdom, which remained as much the heart of Paul's gospel as it had been the center of Jesus' own message. When Jesus embarked on his intensive evangelistic campaign in Galilee in about 27 AD, he summoned his audience to a radical change of heart based on the national belief that God was going to usher in the worldwide kingdom promised by Daniel and all the prophets. Intelligent belief in the promise of the kingdom is to be the disciples' first step, coupled with a major U-turn in lifestyle. In this way, men and women can align themselves with God's great purpose for the earth. The nature of Jesus' activity was that of a herald, making a public announcement on behalf of the one God of Israel. The thrust of the message was that each individual should undertake a radical redirection of his life in face of the certainty of the coming kingdom of God. This was, and still is, the essence of the Christian gospel. How can it be otherwise when it is the gospel message which comes from the lips of Christ himself? It is a matter of common sense to recognize that by using the term kingdom of God, Jesus would have evoked in the minds of his audience, steeped as they were in the national hope of Israel, a divine worldwide government on earth with its capital at Jerusalem. This is what the kingdom of God would certainly have meant to Jesus' contemporaries. The writings of the prophets, which Jesus as a Jew recognized as the divinely authorized word of God, had unanimously promised the arrival of a new era of peace and prosperity. The ideal kingdom would rule forever. God's people would be victorious in a renewed earth. Peace would extend across the globe. Thus, to announce the coming of the kingdom involved both a threat and a promise. To those who responded to the message by believing it and reordering their lives accordingly, there was a promise of a place in the glories of the future divine rule. To the rest, the kingdom would threaten destruction. As God executed judgment upon any not found worthy of entering the kingdom when it came. This theme governs the whole New Testament. In the light of this primary concept, 
the teaching of Jesus becomes comprehensible. It is an exhortation to win immortality in the future kingdom and to escape destruction and exclusion from the kingdom. Traditional systems of gospel preaching are saddled with the unbiblical destiny of the believer described as, quote, heaven. The Abrahamic covenant, which underlies the Christian gospel of the kingdom, is then applied to Jews only. But it is the Christians who, according to Jesus, are destined to, quote, inherit the earth. Matthew 5, verse 5, and the kingdom. Further opposition to the messianic Jesus. The association of the kingdom of God with a spectacular divine intervention leading to the establishment of a new world order has proven to be an embarrassment to much of the theology of the past 1600 years. Various techniques have been employed to eliminate from Jesus' teaching this central notion of the kingdom of God as a real government to be imposed upon our world. However, the vision of the prophets, which Jesus came to confirm, Romans 15 verse 8, is unmistakably clear, and there is ample evidence in the New Testament to show that Jesus shared with his contemporaries the hope for an actual, quote, exterior kingdom in which he and his followers would enjoy positions of authority. What, for example, could be more explicit than the Savior's promise to the faithful Christians? I quote, To those who prove victorious and keep working for me, until the end I will give the authority over the pagans which I myself have been given by my Father, to rule them with an iron scepter and shatter them like earthenware. Those who prove victorious, I will allow to share my throne, just as I was victorious myself and took my place with my Father on his throne. As from Revelation 2 verse 26, and Revelation 3, verse 21, as translated by the Jerusalem Bible. These assurances were given to the church as, quote, the message of the Son of God, the faithful and true witness. Revelation 2, verse 18, Revelation 3, verse 14. They proceed directly from Jesus to his church. As is well known, they reflect accurately the Jewish and New Testament Christian hope for world dominion under the promised Messiah and his faithful people, just as Daniel had predicted. In the same book, we find an angelic chorus singing of the wonders of God's plan, and their hymn is in praise of the Messiah, the executive of the divine plan. I quote, You are worthy to take the scroll and break the seals of it, because you were sacrificed, and with your blood 
You bought men for God of every race, language, people, and nation, and made them a line of kings and priests to serve our God and to rule the world. Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10 from the Jerusalem Bible. The tendency to want to collapse these plain statements and render them less, quote, offensive is apparent in contemporary Christian literature. But it must be consciously overcome. In order to make Jesus more, quote, religious and less political, many have tried to think only of a present, quote, reign of the church or a, quote, reign of Christ, quote, in the heart. But this is evidently not what these kingdom texts say. The rulership promised to the believer will be granted only after he has become victorious through the trials of the present life. He will then share the kingdom with Jesus at the future resurrection. Just as Jesus gained his position of authority on the Father's throne only at his resurrection. Commentators on these passages frequently attempt to keep such promises at arm's length. They seem to want to distance themselves from anything so, quote, Jewish, even sometimes labeling these biblical texts, quote, unchristian. Referring to Psalm 2, which speaks of the conquest of the world by the Messiah, one commentator wrote, Psalm 2 cannot be strictly regarded as referring to Jesus, partly because the establishment of the king upon the holy hill of Zion would have no relevance in his case, partly because the conception of his function as dashing his enemies in pieces is unchristian. That's a quotation from the Dictionary of Christ and the Gospels. The problem with this sort of reasoning is that it contradicts the teaching of the New Testament. Psalm 2 reappears in the book of Revelation, describing the future coming of Christ to rule in the kingdom. Paul also warned of a day of divine wrath on which, and I quote, the Lord Jesus will be revealed in flaming fire dealing out retribution to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of destruction, which excludes them from the age to come, away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power, when he comes to be glorified in all his saints on that day. That's from 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 to 10. Paul then merely reiterates the message of Isaiah about the day of the Lord at which men will, quote, enter the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he arises to make the earth tremble. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 10 and 19. The shattering of unrepentant enemies of the Messiah is as much a New Testament doctrine 
as an Old Testament one. John the Baptist, who preached exactly the same message of the kingdom of God, warned the Pharisees to, quote, flee from the wrath to come. Luke 3, verse 7. The burden of John's gospel preaching was that the Messiah would one day, quote, gather the wheat into his barn, but burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Luke 3, verse 17. Luke comments that with these tough words, John, quote, was preaching the gospel to the people. Luke 3, verse 18. Matthew reports that both Jesus and John proclaimed the same kingdom message. Quote, repent, for the kingdom of heaven, or of God, is at hand. Matthew 3, verse 2, and Matthew 4, verse 17. Another way of avoiding this uncomfortable material is to categorize it as belonging to a genre of literature known as apocalyptic, as though classifying it might make it less offensive. The teaching of Jesus, set as it is within the framework of the book of Daniel, is indeed Christian apocalyptic. It includes, along with all its assurances of the grace and mercy of God, a description of a catastrophic divine intervention introducing a new era and a new government on earth. The book of Revelation comes to us as the revelation granted to Christ by God. Revelation 1 verse 1 and 2. It is no less a reflection of the mind of Jesus than any other of his teachings recorded in the New Testament. If to some the promise of the followers of Jesus of, quote, power over the nations, if that seems to be too political, it may be because the nature of the kingdom of God has not been grasped. What is political is not therefore necessarily unspiritual. Deeply ingrained habits of thought have long caused us to think that things which are spiritual are divorced from real political structures functioning on earth. The Hebrew outlook which Jesus shared does not, however, operate in those dualistic terms. Nor, therefore, must we, if we wish to be in tune with the historical and risen Jesus. Jesus had earlier spoken at the Last Supper of his intention to share rulership with his disciples in the kingdom. He assured them of a place of honor as ministers of state in a new government. This, in fact, was the essential point of the new covenant, reflecting a theme found also in the covenant mediated by Moses, which was also centered on kingship in the kingdom. Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6. 
I quote, You are the ones who have stood by me in my trials, and just as my Father has covenanted a kingdom to me, I covenant with you the right to eat and drink with me in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones governing the twelve tribes of Israel. That's a quotation from Luke chapter 22, verses 28 to 30. Michael Wilcox, in his book, The Saviour of the World, The Message of Luke, written in 1979, renders the word appoint as covenant to give you. The noun covenant occurs in the immediate context in Luke 22, verse 20. Precisely the same political reward had been promised to the apostles on an earlier occasion, with a special note of the time when the messianic government would come into power. I quote, And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones governing the twelve tribes of Israel. That's a quotation from Matthew 19, verse 28. And I note, too, that Job 14, verse 14, in the Septuagint version, links the regeneration, the Palingenesia, with the resurrection of the dead. Job expects to, quote, wait until he comes to be again, Palingenome. This is his response to his own question in Job. If a man dies, will he come to life again? Job 14, verse 14. Formidable barriers have been erected over the centuries against our grasping the fundamental concept presented to us by Jesus in his good news about the kingdom of God. By removing the kingdom from its biblical context, it has been possible to, so to speak, reinterpret it, which is a sophisticated way of abandoning the original meaning, and replace it with our own more acceptable, quote, kingdom in the hearts of men. Thus, a new version of the gospel of Jesus has replaced his original message. Jesus' name has been added to our, quote, good causes, while the good news about the kingdom, understood as Jesus meant it, has largely been discarded. Opposition to the Messiah's kingdom and the book of Revelation. A major underlying cause of the traditional attempts to tone down the so-called uncomfortable aspects of Jesus' teaching is found in the attitude of some Christian commentary on the book of Revelation. It has been the habit of some to display a dislike of Jesus the Christ when they're confronted with the Savior's messianic outlook. We can most easily illustrate this antipathy to the messianic kingdom and thus to the gospel of the kingdom by citing a school of thought 
which denies that the book of Revelation derives its inspiration from Jesus Christ. To scholars of this persuasion, the Revelation was written by one who, and I quote, one who lives on the learned results of past ages. He has studied books and digested books. He has drawn his great eschatological, that's to say relating to the future, system from them. This very human wisdom he produces as if it were God's word. And he tries to conceal from himself his insight into the real origin of the book by making as loud assertions of its divine origin as possible. Thereby his work becomes a memorial of the decay of prophecy. The final act of the drama is described by him in two stages. First of all, after the battle of the Messiah, there is the thousand years reign of Christ and the martyrs. This is indeed the official Jewish eschatology. We have here the most entire reversion conceivable to the old familiar national Jewish language. The Christian people takes the place of the Jewish and takes over its contempt for the Gentiles. For such Christians, the whole transformation which Jesus effected of the conception of the kingdom of God has been in vain. That's a quotation from Paul Wernle in his Beginnings of Christianity, written in 1903. So much for the Jesus of the book of Revelation. He is just an ignorant Jew. Unfortunately for those who belong to this school, which represents an influential theological tradition, begin by misunderstanding Jesus and his message of the kingdom. They then accuse Jesus in the book of Revelation, of contradicting their misconception. It appears that unbelief carries with it an inevitable penalty. Quote, if you will not believe, neither shall you understand. That's a quotation from Isaiah chapter 7 verse 9 in the Septuagint. We cite further evidence of the fact that Jesus' message in the book of Revelation and thus his whole messianic outlook has been dismissed as unfit for modern believers. One book requires notice by reason of its peculiar character and of its influence on Christian eschatology, teaching about the future, namely the Revelation of John. Most of the visions contain so little that is specifically Christian, I add, although given by Jesus Christ, that it has been seriously questioned whether they were not appropriated entire from Jewish sources with only a superficial adaptation to Christian use. Whatever degree of literary originality may be allowed the author, 
The matter is Jewish throughout. The resurrection of the saints to enjoy the thousand-year reign of the Messiah, the war of Gog and Magog at the end of the millennium, and their destruction, the general resurrection and the last judgment, the new Jerusalem descending from heaven in all its glitter of gold, even to the river of life, and the trees bearing monthly crops of new fruit and medicinal leaves, are the trite ideas and imagery of Jewish eschatology with its corporeal resurrection and its millennial reign. These were brought over into the church and found acceptance among ignorant Christians. In the second century millenarian eschatology, belief that the saints will rule with Christ for a thousand years, became orthodoxy in Asia Minor and the wide regions which took their theology from that source. It is the faith of Irenaeus. It has survived through all the vicissitudes of theology and over and over again has broken out in epidemics of enthusiasm. End of quotation from G. F. Moore in his History of Religion. We may applaud this excellent summary of what the book of Revelation expects in the future while marveling at the cavalier fashion in which the great truths of the New Testament and the Old Testament are banished as non-Christian and Jesus' vision is dismissed as, quote, trite. A little-known fact about the founding fathers of large sections of Protestant Christianity will help to explain why large sections of the Christian world have rejected the messianic gospel of Jesus. Luther, at first, in his preface to his translation of the New Testament in 1522, expressed a strong aversion to the book of Revelation, declaring that to him it had every mark of being neither prophetic nor apostolic. He cannot see that it was the work of the Holy Spirit. Moreover, he does not like the commands and threats which the writer makes about his book in Revelation 22, verses 18 and 19, and the promise of blessedness to those who keep what is written in it, in Revelation 1, verse 3, and 22, verse 7, when, as Luther says, no one knows what that is, to say nothing of keeping it. And there are many nobler books to be kept. Moreover, many fathers rejected the book, Finally, everyone thinks of it, whatever his spirit imparts. My spirit, said Luther, cannot adapt itself to this book. And a sufficient reason why I do not esteem it highly is that Christ is neither taught nor recognized in it, which is what an apostle ought before all things to do. Now, later on in 1534, 
Luther finds a possibility of Christian usefulness in the book, but he still thought it to be a hidden, dumb prophecy unless interpreted, and upon the interpretation no certainty has been reached after many efforts. Luther remained doubtful about its apostolicity, and in 1545 he printed it with Hebrews, James, and Jude as an appendix to his New Testament, not numbered in the index. And then Zwingli, a leading reformer, regarded Revelation as, quote, not a biblical book. And even Calvin, with his high view of inspiration, does not comment on 2nd and 3rd John or Revelation. That information is found in the Hastings Dictionary of the Bible in the article on Revelation. Readers should reflect on the remarkable fact that churches have continued to place considerable faith in the spiritual leadership of Calvin and Luther Despite the former's hesitancy about the Apocalypse, Calvin wrote no commentary on Revelation, and the latter's apparent failure, that's to say Luther's apparent failure, to heed the warnings of Jesus given in the Revelation. I quote, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues written in the book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the prophecy, God will take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. That's a quotation from Revelation 22, verses 18 and 19. Another quotation from Revelation, Blessed is he who keeps the sayings of the prophecy of this book. Blessed is he who reads, and they who hear the words of this prophecy, and keep the things which are written in it, for the time is at hand. Revelation 1 verse 3. This hardly sounds as if the book could be safely relegated to an appendix the book of Revelation, as is well recognized, draws together the strands of Old Testament prophecy. It contains hundreds of allusions to and quotations from the Hebrew Bible and describes the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth at the second coming of Jesus. It is the fitting climax to the expectations of both Old and New Testament depicting the triumph of the kingdom of God over a hostile world. The kingdom of God announced by Jesus will finally come to power on earth when the seventh angel sounds. Paul had spoken of the same last trumpet signaling the resurrection of the dead in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 to 52. I quote, the kingdoms of this world 
have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he shall reign forever and ever. We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, who is and was and is to come, because you have assumed power and have begun to reign. Compare with that Psalm 97 verse 1 and Psalm 99 verse 1. The Lord has begun to reign. And the nations were angry, and your wrath has come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that you should give reward to your servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and to those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. That's a quotation from Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 to 18. This is the kingdom of God announced in the gospel message and the kingdom for which Christians are to pray, thy kingdom come. It is not widely recognized that in so praying, Christians anticipate the overthrow of human governments in order that peace and harmony may prevail across the globe. One fact is unmistakably clear in the New Testament. The kingdom of God will come only as a result of a divine intervention bringing to an end the, quote, present evil age. An anti-messianic tendency. The rejection of the book of Revelation points to a deeply rooted anti-messianic tendency in much traditional theology. When commentators assess the Revelation as unchristian, attempt to remove it from the canon of Scripture, or reinterpret it, so to speak, to avoid its, quote, Jewish millennial prophecy, the future thousand-year reign of Christ and the saints, then they display their distaste for the Jesus whose all-consuming concern was to bring peace to the earth and justice for all through his kingdom, which is the heart of his gospel. The real Jesus never abandoned the prophet's hope for messianic government on earth. Jesus knew, however, that the worldwide triumph of the kingdom must await his second coming in glory, his miraculous activity in Palestine, was indeed a demonstration of the power of the kingdom in advance of its coming. Thus, in the New Testament, the day of the Lord is expected to arrive when Jesus returns, quote, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God. That's a quotation from 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 8. Then the kingdom would come. Then the hopes of all the ages would reach fulfillment, then only could the agonized cry, How long, O Lord, find its answer? It is to this messianic future that the New Testament strains in verse after verse. Someone has calculated that the second coming is mentioned over 300 times in the New Testament. The number is much higher when synonyms for the return of Jesus 
are taken into account. Once, however, the tension line between the believer and the bright future in the kingdom is slackened, the vitality and excitement of the faith can be lost and the point of discipleship destroyed. At present, churchgoers often lack that essential drive to reach the promised kingdom. They have not been told what that kingdom is. So many of their mentors seem to have an unclear view of the Christian future. There's a blank in their conception of what the future holds for the believer needing to be filled with all the riches of the biblical hope for the reign of Christ on earth. It's impossible to exaggerate the importance of the prophetic vision of the future. One writer on the message of the prophets gathered the material relating to the coming kingdom in a book which he entitled The Hebrew Utopia, which he described as follows. No words can describe the glory and the beauty, the grand perfection and the sweet comfort of that marvelous age of which prophet after prophet came forward to utter some fresh prediction. Plato's model republic and Sir Thomas More's utopia are cheerless and uninviting beside this ravishing dream of the future, portrayed often as hovering just beyond their horizon, but always as certain to be enjoyed in this weary world at the fitting time. That's a quotation from W.F. Edene, The Hebrew Utopia, written in 1879. A future with no substance. The prospect of the coming reign of Christ and the faithful on earth is part and parcel of the gospel message, inextricably linked with the sacrificial death of Jesus and his resurrection. Acts 8.12, Acts 19, verse 8, Acts 28, verses 23 and 31. Tragically, some have disparaged the hope of the coming kingdom by treating it as disposable, a relic of a primitive mentality which we, with our vastly superior scientific outlook, are unable to embrace. This places the Christian doctrine of the kingdom under a fog. The Christian future is reduced to a meaningless non-event rather than a stupendous climax in history for which all are commanded to prepare. The fact that not everyone will survive until the coming of Jesus in power is no excuse for neglecting the teaching about the Messiah's return. The date of that return is known to no one. Those believers who have died before the end of the age will take part in the glory of the kingdom through resurrection. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 13 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23, and Revelation 11, verses 15 to 18. The following inquiry was addressed to a representative of the clergy in a Presbyterian magazine. The response illustrates the unwillingness of some to take seriously the reality of Jesus' warnings about the future. This was the question. Why are there so few sermons in our churches 
on the second coming. Is this part of our belief or not? And the answer was as follows. Not all Christians think alike on matters of theology, but it would be hard for someone to feel at home in our tradition who did not understand God as the one who has come, who is present, that's to say Christ is risen, and who is yet to come in whatever form the future winds up taking. To literalize the second coming is to ruin both its beauty and its significance. To ignore it is to avoid what may be the most important part of the gospel we know about since the past and the present, relatively speaking, are brief, while tomorrow borders on the forever. An appropriate reaction to this answer appeared in a later issue of the magazine, as follows. Quote, I compliment the Reverend so-and-so for his elusive non-answer to what I'm sure was a serious question concerning the second coming of Jesus Christ. If I understand his answer, he said, in effect, we don't all agree, but if you want to be comfortable in our fellowship, you will need to agree that Jesus is coming again, but not really. For if you actually believe in the second coming, you will ruin both its beauty and its significance. Yet you can't ignore it because it's in the future. Why not a simple answer? Why not admit that those who cannot receive the Bible literally must spiritualize the second coming because it is too large a segment of the New Testament to be ignored? That question and answer was cited from the United Presbyterian magazine written in 1981. This approach to the New Testament doctrine about the future is not untypical of much of what has gone under the name of Christian teaching over many centuries. It has been hard for many to detect the trick being played with words when an outright rejection of the biblical doctrine of the kingdom is veiled by impressive, quote, theological language. What much traditional theology has done to the second coming should not be graced with the term, quote, spiritualize. It has neutralized and evaporated the return of Christ. The whole vision of the prophets and the whole gospel of the kingdom is in jeopardy if its dominant future element is removed. Even the gospel proposed by many evangelicals suffers from the same absence of any future reference in the message. Definitions of the Gospel A definition of the Gospel was offered by the Lausanne Conference on Evangelism in 1974. It speaks of the forgiveness of sins through the death of Jesus, of his resurrection, and of his present reign in heaven. It says nothing, however, about the kingdom of God as the goal of the Christian believer. The future dimension of salvation, so prominent in the New Testament, is absent. This absence of the kingdom appears to cut the gospel message in half, stripping it of its strong emphasis 
on God's plan to send his son back to the earth to reign with his followers in the messianic government promised by the prophets. I quote here from the Lausanne Covenant. To evangelize is to spread the good news that Jesus Christ died for our sins and was raised from the dead according to the scriptures, and that as reigning Lord he now offers the forgiveness of sins and the liberating gift of the Spirit to all who repent and believe. This definition, however, lacks the central future kingdom component characteristic of the Bible. We propose that the statement might be amended as follows. I quote now, To evangelize is to spread the good news that God has planned as the goal of history and for the reassertion of his sovereignty on earth to establish the kingdom of God when Jesus returns. That Jesus now offers forgiveness and new life through his death and resurrection to all those who repent and believe the message. Mark 1, verses 14 and 15. The promise of the Spirit to those who obey him, Acts 5, 32, and an invitation to all who respond to the good news of the kingdom and the name of Jesus Christ, Acts 8, 12, to prepare for positions of responsibility with Jesus in the coming kingdom. A suppression of information. There's a marked absence of the phrase kingdom of God in places where we would most expect it to be found. A prominent leader of the ecumenical movement who served as Associate General Secretary of the World Council of Churches observes that, and I quote, the kingdom of God was the central theme of the preaching of Jesus as we find it in the New Testament. And yet it cannot be said that it has been the central theme in the great classical traditions of Christendom. It is not mentioned in the Apostles' Creed. The Nicene Creed says of Christ that, quote, his kingdom shall have no end, but does not use the phrase kingdom of God. The main tradition stemming from the Reformation speaks of preaching the gospel or preaching Christ, but seldom of preaching the kingdom. That's from a book by Leslie Newbegin, The Sign of the Kingdom, written in 1981. A recent tract issued by the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association bears the title, quote, What is the Gospel? The writer makes no reference to the gospel of the kingdom, but tells us that the gospel is the gospel of God, the gospel of Christ, the gospel of our salvation, and the gospel of peace. Mention is made also of the phrase gospel of the grace of God, Acts 20 verse 24. But amazingly, the illuminating explanatory phrase which occurs in the very next verse, is entirely omitted. Paul here defines the, quote, gospel of the grace of God as the proclamation of the kingdom, Acts 20, verse 25. A pattern of presenting the gospel 
with texts only from Romans and John, with the addition of some references to Paul's letters, can be seen in scores of tracts offering, quote, salvation. The widely used, quote, four spiritual laws counsels its readers to begin with John, verse 25, and makes no reference to the gospel about the kingdom. I'm referring here to an article, Have You Heard of the Four Spiritual Laws? Campus Crusade for Christ. More than a thousand million copies are in print. I add that R.A. Torrey's How to Witness to Anyone, 1986, contains no references to the kingdom of God. The International Standard Bible Dictionary discusses the term gospel and explains that it refers to the message which Christ and his apostles announced. The gospel is that instrument through which the Holy Spirit works. It then points out that, and I quote, in some places it's called the gospel of God, Mark 1.14, Romans 1 verse 1, 1 Thessalonians 2 verses 2 and 9, 1 Timothy 1 verse 11. In others it's called the gospel of Christ, Mark 1 verse 1. Romans 1 16, Romans 15 19, 1 Corinthians 9 verse 12 and 18, Galatians 1 verse 7. In another, it's called the gospel of the grace of God, Acts 20 verse 24. In another, it's called the gospel of the grace of God, Acts 20 verse 24. In another, the gospel of peace. Ephesians 6 verse 15, the gospel of your salvation, Ephesians 1 verse 13, and yet another, the gospel of glory, or the glorious gospel, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4. Despite the fact that the gospel is directly connected to the term kingdom as the good news of the kingdom of God, in some 20 places in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as well as by implication in scores of verses throughout the New Testament where the word gospel or message or word appears, the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia omits entirely to tell us of the phrase gospel of the kingdom. This extraordinary silence about the kingdom of God is characteristic of so much that is known as Christian evangelism. It's reasonable to ask why the kingdom of God features so little in modern evangelism. The answer is to be found in a long-standing de-emphasis on the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, dating from Calvin and Luther. An unconscious offense at the Messianic Jewish Jesus caused these two Protestant leaders to express a curious preference for the Gospel of John over the other three Gospels. Luther, writing the preface to his translation of the New Testament in 1522, stated, John's Gospel is the only Gospel which is delicately sensitive to what is the essence of the Gospel and is to be widely preferred 
to the other three and placed on a higher level. That's cited by D. Fuller in Gospel and Law, Contrast or Continuum, written in 1980. Luther was followed by Calvin in this opinion. Calvin even ventured to suggest a different order for Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, making John the ideal introduction to his three fellow reporters of the life of Jesus. The doctrine which points out to us the power and the benefit of the coming Christ is far more clearly exhibited by John than by the Synoptic Gospels. The three former Synoptic Gospels exhibit Christ's body, but John exhibits his soul. On this account, I am accustomed to say that this Gospel of John is a key to open the door for understanding the rest. In reading the four Gospels, a different order would be advantageous, which is that when we wish to read in Matthew and others that Christ was given to us by the Father, we should first learn from John the purpose for which he was manifested. That's from the forward to Calvin's commentary on John. Christians should awake to the fact that their various traditional systems claiming to be based on Scripture have not served them well. Scripture nowhere says that John's Gospel is to be preferred over Matthew, Mark, and Luke, nor does it teach that Jesus preached a Jewish message up to the cross, whereupon Paul then took a message of grace to the Gentiles. The New Schofield Bible, read by millions, says that, quote, a strong legal and Jewish coloring is to be expected up to the cross. That's from the New Schofield Bible. And the fact is that the whole New Testament faith is Jewish in character and consistently makes strong demands for obedience. So the Schofield Bible is completely mistaken on that point. We are at the crux of the problem which this book seeks to address. A false distinction and division is being created by the so-called dispensationalist school. The teachings of Jesus do not remain in the dispensationalist system at the center of the scheme of salvation proposed by dispensationalists. John Walford says that the Sermon on the Mount treats not of salvation, but the character and conduct of those who belong to Christ, that it is suitable to point an unbeliever to salvation in Christ, is plainly not the intention of this message, the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, says Dr. John Walford, as a whole, is not church truth precisely. It is not intended to delineate justification by faith or the gospel of salvation. That's from Walford's commentary on Matthew, Thy Kingdom Come, 1984. Rather ambiguously, 
Professor Walford adds that the Sermon on the Mount should not be relegated to unimportant truth. The words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount could hardly express more clearly that obedience to his teachings are in fact the basis of salvation. I quote, Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven, that is, be saved. Matthew 5, verse 20. Another quotation. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. Matthew 7, verse 21. Jesus goes on to say that those who fail to gain salvation are those who fail to obey his words. Matthew 7, verses 24 to 27. Compare with that the verses in John 3.36, John 8.51, and John 12, verses 44 to 50. And this is, in the words of John Walford, the very Sermon on the Mount, which Walford says is, quote, not church truth precisely. Until churches renounce the disparagement of the teaching of Jesus implied in their various systems, we cannot hope for unity. We must rally around the great central theme of the gospel of the kingdom, which expresses the genius of the Christian faith and brings us close to the heart of Jesus. Ellis Schaeffer's distinction drawn between what some label the, quote, legal teachings of Jesus and the grace message of Paul seems to us to be entirely mistaken. Under the conditions laid down in the kingdom teachings, life is entered into by a personal faithfulness. Matthew 5, verses 28 to 29, and Matthew 18, verse 8. Luke 13, verse 24, opens with the words, Strive to enter in at the narrow gate. The word strive is a translation of agonizome, which means agonize. It suggests the uttermost expenditure of the athlete's strength in the contest. Such is the human condition that characterizes all the kingdom passages which offer entrance into life. But an abrupt change is met after turning to the Gospel of John, which was written to announce the new message of grace, which is that eternal life may be had through believing. No two words of Scripture more vividly express the great characterizing relationship in law and grace than agonize and believe. Grace is the unfolding of the fact that one has agonized in our stead and life is, quote, through his name, not by any degree of human faithfulness and merit. That's a quotation from Systematic Theology from Dallas Seminary Press, written in 1947. While dispensationalism upholds the authority and integrity of Scripture,
it proceeds to divide the apostles against each other, making John and Paul rivals of Jesus. It makes the kingdom gospel of Jesus, by which salvation is to be sought, as we read in Mark 1, 14 and 15, Matthew 13, verse 19, Luke 8, 12, Acts 8, 12, Acts 19, 8, and Acts 28, verses 23 and 31. Those verses tell us about seeking salvation. The dispensationalist system makes those verses of historical interest only since dispensationalism claims the message was changed according to the theory of dispensationalism at the cross. It is simply not true that believing is a new idea in the Gospel of John and in Paul. Believing the Gospel of the Kingdom of God is the platform of Jesus' presentation of the saving message in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John refers constantly to the word and words and teachings of Jesus, and Paul likewise traces all sound faith to belief in the message of the Messiah, Romans 10, verse 17. Christ and the land. We have suggested that Jesus was in the best Jewish tradition when he promised the meek that they would have the land as their inheritance. Matthew 5, verse 5, is one of many indications that Jesus has not abandoned the Hebrew Bible. There's no good reason for attaching to the term land a meaning other than Palestine renewed and refreshed under the Messiah's government. I ask this, was it a dislike of the Jewishness of Matthew 5, verse 5, which unconsciously prompted the translators of the Good News Bible to substitute for the word land, quote, what God has promised. This would surely be a classic case of preferring vagueness over clear-cut definition. Jesus has not ceased to expect a divine empire in a renovated earth. As Psalm 37 verse 11 and the whole of Israel's prophetic tradition had hoped for, as W.C. Allen wrote, it seems best to suppose that this clause, the meek shall inherit the earth, should be understood literally. The earth purified from sin and purged of the ungodly who now press the poor and meek godly people will then be extensive with the kingdom. That's from the International Critical Commentary on Matthew, written in 1907. Thus the kingdom is correctly defined as the future earth renewed under the Messiah's government. Clayton Sullivan, in a perceptive study of the kingdom, and the confusion over its meaning because of theologians' persistent attempts to make it a timeless idea, Clayton Sullivan has this to say, that Jesus conceived of the kingdom as a realm 
compatible to a territory or to a city becomes obvious when attention is given to all the synoptic data, not just to selected slanted data from Mark and Q. This insight is significant. It is contrary to Professor Dodd's conception of the kingdom, the Vasilia, as a curative power operative in Jesus' exorcisms. That's from Clayton Sullivan's book, Rethinking Realized Eschatology. Sullivan charges Dodd with using slippery language, defining the kingdom in about 28 different ways and approaching the texts of the New Testament with a platonic frame of reference. Solomon shows that the kingdom of God is a realm or place, a place of eating and drinking, a place with stations of honor, a place with different ranks, a place to be entered bodily and seen with the eye. John's Gospel confirms the expectation that Jesus is heir of Palestine renewed. I quote, He came to his own country, and his own people did not receive him. John 1 verse 11. I note that Canaan is the Holy Land and Jehovah's own inheritance, and the Messiah came to his own country and his own people did not receive him. That's from the article on inheritance in the Hastings Dictionary of the Bible, written in 1958. At present, many commentators seem most unwilling to yield to the plain testimony of Jesus' expectation for the land. It is clear to all that Jesus did not, during his historical ministry, take any steps to assume governorship over any territory whatever. Nevertheless, he claimed to be the Messiah, a word with the strongest possible political implications. It is to be expected, then, that he will yet carry out the program of world rescue for which the second Adam is destined by returning to reign on earth. No one should mistake the point of view of this book for the prevalent idea among some Bible students that the Jewish people of today have rights to the land as non-believers in the Messiah Jesus. The promises made to Abraham are reserved for believers in Jesus as the Christ. As we see from Matthew 16, verses 16 to 18, John 20, verse 31, 1 John 2, verse 22, and 1 John 5, verse 1, and so on. The promises to Abraham were made and reserved for believers in Jesus as the Christ. Evangelical writers are right to point out that, quote, the present nation of Israel is a nation among nations, and it must be judged as any other political state. But to identify modern Israel, the state or the Jewish people, with the Israel of God is to miss the teaching of the New Testament at one of its most vital points.
I quote there from Frank Stagg in an article, The Israel of God in the New Testament, in his book, Christians, Zionism, and Palestine, written in 1970. The biblical point of view is that no one has a right to the blessings of Abraham outside the covenant in Christ. This is a central conviction of the New Testament writers. There's no evidence in the New Testament, however, that the promise of the land and the world has been scrapped in favor of, quote, heaven. Jesus' contemporaries knew what the prophets had said and reflected this conviction, for example, in the Psalms of Solomon, written only a half century before the birth of Jesus. And he shall gather a holy people, and he shall divide them according to their tribes upon the land, and neither sojourner nor alien shall sojourn with them any more. That's from Psalms of Solomon, number 17, verses 26 and 28. In the same vein, the 18 benedictions looked forward to the time when God would, quote, be merciful towards Israel, Israel thy people, and towards Jerusalem thy city, and towards Zion the abiding place of thy glory, and towards thy temple and habitation, and towards the kingdom of the house of David, thy righteous anointed one. Blessed art thou, O Lord God of David, the builder of Jerusalem. That's from benediction number 14. Nothing in the teaching of Jesus, nor the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, renders these hopes obsolete. The New Testament expects their fulfillment at the return of Messiah. As we've seen, the territorial expectation is alive in the believers known to Luke, who rejoiced in salvation for Jerusalem. Luke 2, verse 25 and 38, Luke 24, verse 21, and Acts 1, verse 6. The land is the object of Jesus' future reward in Matthew 5, verse 5. He speaks with his Jewish compatriots of a regathering of the tribes, of assigning the apostles' rulership over them, and of people of all nations coming, quote, from east and west to participate in the banquet marking the inauguration of the kingdom. Matthew 8, verse 11. Future salvation focuses on the earth. That is the whole point of Jesus coming back. Jesus' promise that the meek will inherit the land is an explicit statement that the land promise is alive and well in Messiah's thinking. In fact, he equates the kingdom with the land. I note that W.D. Davis speaks of Matthew's collocation, as to say, placing together as equivalents of entering the kingdom and inheriting the land. That's from Davis's book, The Gospel and the Land. In his Beatitudes, Jesus can equally well say, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 5, verse 3, or blessed 
are the gentle, for they will inherit the land or the earth. Matthew 5, verse 5. Christians, therefore, should think of the renewal of the land every time they encounter the word kingdom. For a reorganized society under Messiah's government, the Lord urges us to pray, Thy kingdom come. I'm puzzled by the assertion of G.M. Burge in his interesting book, Who Are God's People in the Middle East? that, quote, the New Testament never refers to the land promises of Abraham directly, and that, quote, Jesus fails to mention the land in any significant way. The land and the city of Jerusalem are not featured in his teachings. So says Gary Burge in his book, Who Are God's People in the Middle East? And it's a surprising statement. Burge does not discuss Matthew 5, verse 5, in his chapter on the New Testament and the land. Since Jesus upheld the Hebrew Bible, it's clear that he cannot have come to abolish the promise made to Abraham and the faithful. New Testament writers mean all the promises made to Abraham, including the land, when they refer to the promise or covenant or inheritance. These terms are shorthand expressions not needing to be given in full in the same way that Americans understand what is meant by the states as an abbreviation for the United States of America. The message in the New Testament is itself a compressed label for, quote, the message of the kingdom and the name of Jesus. Luke 4, verse 43, Luke 5, verse 1, Acts 8, verses 4, 5, and 12. Paul speaks of the promises made to Abraham, specifying the promise that, quote, he would inherit the world. Romans 4, verse 13, Jesus taught parables about the vineyard, a term which his audience would recognize as another word for the land. The book of Hebrews describes the Christian future as gaining, quote, the coming inhabited earth, Hebrews 2, verse 5. Paul was looking forward to the divine kingdom on earth when he spoke of, quote, the heavenly kingdom and the crown which he would receive on that future day in 2 Timothy 4, verses 8 and 18. The promise of the risen Christ dwelling in believers does not make inheritance of the world or land or earth redundant. Again, I cannot follow Gary Burge's contention that Hebrews 11 redefines the land to mean something other than a place on this planet. We are not arguing, of course, that the land in its present condition as the home of unbelievers, is the promised land of the future. Nevertheless, Hebrews 11 verse 9 expressly says that Abraham resided as a foreigner in the promised land. Canaan is not a metaphor for a place removed from the earth. Abraham must yet return to the land guaranteed to him in which he lived, but which he never inherited.
The heavenly land of Hebrews 11 verse 16 is not a land in heaven any more than the kingdom of God is a kingdom in heaven. Attention needs to be paid to the danger of reading traditional notions about the afterlife into the text of Scripture. Quote, The circumlocution kingdom of heaven is unfortunate because it misleads people into thinking that the kingdom is only in heaven and not to be on the earth. Matthew 6, verse 10, and that's a quotation from the New Jerome Biblical Commentary, written in 1990. Since the word, quote, land means also earth, heaven, as the goal of the believer, is a term most likely to confuse the biblical hope. But Jesus never promised heaven to his disciples. So says an expert who devoted a book to investigating Jesus and the future life by William Strawson. And the point may be examined by Christians using a concordance. I quote, In few, if any, instances of the word heaven in the Synoptic Gospels, is there any parallel with modern usage? The Gospel records of our Lord's life and teaching do not speak of going to heaven, as a modern believer so naturally does. Rather, is the emphasis on that which is heavenly coming down to man when any movement is thought of. Again, our modern way of speaking of life with God as being life, quote, in heaven, is not the way the Gospels speak of the matter. Especially is there no suggestion that Jesus is offering to his disciples the certainty of, quote, heaven after this life. This is not to say that there is no such assurance in the teaching of Jesus, but certainly the term heaven is not used of that assurance. That's from the book Jesus and the Future Life by William Strawson. It seems most strange then that the word heaven is today the normal Christian expression for the afterlife, although Jesus had nothing to say about, quote, heaven as the Christian objective. The difference illustrated by the loss of biblical language in a matter as central as the Christian hope points to a deep-seated problem needing to be addressed by those seeking to follow Jesus and his teaching. W.D. Davies and the Land If, quote, heaven has been substituted by the church for kingdom of God, a loss of the land promise and thus of a major element in the covenant made with the fathers has been almost inevitable. When W.D. Davies produced his magnificent study of the gospel and the land in 1974, he was unable to explain Jesus' obvious commitment to the Hebrew promise of Psalm 37, verse 11. I note that the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament states that Psalm 37, verse 11, promises the meek the place Palestine perfected 
in the messianic glory. W.D. Davies seems most uneasy with the idea that Jesus could have shared the, quote, concrete view of the future of the world held by fellow Jews. He discusses the possibility that Matthew, quote, created the interpretative beatitude we now have in Matthew 5, verse 5. If speak be followed, that's a commentator, speak, there can be no question of 5, 5 of Matthew going back to Jesus, W.D. Davies. It is at least dubious, he says, whether Jesus uttered Matthew 5, verse 5. It is difficult, he says, not to disengage the verse in its Matthean context from the territorial promise of the Old Testament and Judaism. That's a quotation from the book The Gospel and the Land by W.D. Davis. But the argument is circular and falls into the trap of dividing the local and territorial from the universal and spiritual. Davies says, quote, it has become widely customary to spiritualize the possession of the land so that to inherit the land becomes a symbol for inheriting conditions under the rule of God in a spiritual sense. He feels himself bound to, quote, divorce Matthew 5, 5 from its meaning in Psalm 37, verse 11. Certainly the inheritance of Christians in other parts of the New Testament is supra-terrestrial, so says W.D. Davies. But why should we think of separating Jesus from the Hebrew texts in which he was steeped? We are bound to think that so-called theology is dictating exegesis and in such a way as to de-Judaize and de-Messianize the Savior and lift him out of his Jewish matrix. This is the church's ongoing tragedy. The failure to see Matthew 5 verse 5 as the confirmation of the prophecy of Psalm 37 verse 11, understood as the psalm intended, symbolizes the church's persistent tendency to uproot Jesus from his Hebrew environment. The awkward evidence of Acts 1 verse 6. G.M. Burge follows the tradition, which is unwilling to believe that the apostles might have been well-instructed Christians when they ask about the restoration of the kingdom to Israel. It seems to us unsatisfactory in the extreme to set Jesus in opposition to the thinking of the apostles on the eve of their world mission when he had personally discipled them so extensively, especially on the critical issue of the kingdom. Burge says, quote, the disciples' minds were on political restoration in Acts 1 verse 6, but for Jesus, God's kingdom was fundamentally God's reign over the lives of men and women, not an empire. But what if the messianic kingdom begins by capturing the hearts and minds of the believers, becoming a living power in their lives,
and ends with the establishment of a restored Davidic theocracy on earth in the hands of the Son of Man and the saints. Such an ideal would prompt the highest ethical effort in preparation for worldwide service with the Messiah at his return. The hoped-for kingdom is both an ideal in the heart and also a real government in Jerusalem dependent upon the return of the Christ. There is nothing unspiritual about Messiah ruling the world with the saints in Jerusalem. The church seems to have abandoned hope for the restoration of the earth and the land. The church seems to have abandoned hope for the restoration of the earth and the land. In an article entitled, quote, Christianity, Judaism Internationalized, John McRae observes, I quote, Paul argues in Galatians 3.16 that the use of the singular shows that Christ, not the Israelites in general, was the object of the promise. This argument is indeed strange from both the Christian and Jewish perspectives, since neither Abraham nor Christ inherited the land. The same loss of confidence in the divine promise is expressed by the writer of the article on Christianity in the Encyclopedia of Religion and Ethics. I quote, The apocalyptic hope has not found a literal fulfillment, and there is no likelihood that it ever will. It is our conviction, however, that the gospel is the answer to that very enigma. The Bible is pledged to the faithfulness of God, to his promises to Abraham in Christ. The resurrection has as its primary purpose not only the conferring of immortality, but the granting of the long-awaited land and kingdom to the people of God. The territorial promise, in its fullest extent, awaits fulfillment at the return of Christ to rule. That is the Bible's story and the point of glory to which it strains from cover to cover. The paradox is that neither Jew nor Orthodox Christian sees how the story ends. The Jew still hopes to gain the land, apart from Christ, hence the ongoing struggle in the Middle East. That cannot be, because in God's plan the Holy Land must be peopled by holy inhabitants, and this is possible only in Christ. The Christian hopes to avoid the land by going to, quote, heaven. Neither position is apostolic. Both point to a defection from the Christian messianism of the New Testament. Restoring the gospel terminology of the early church. A valuable step towards clearing up confusion over the kingdom of God would be taken if Christians adopted the Bible's primary gospel language. In Acts 8, Luke uses several parallel phrases to describe the evangelistic activity of the church. They were, quote, preaching the message as good news, literally evangelizing the word, Acts 8, verse 4. Philip, 
quote, proclaimed the Christ to them. Acts 8 verse 5. Samaria thus, quote, received the message of God. Acts 8 verse 14. After, quote, they had testified and spoken the message of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Acts 8 verse 25. At the center of this account, however, Luke provides the most comprehensive description of the content of the saving message. With a carefully worded formula, Luke lets us know exactly what proclaiming the Christ or proclaiming the message or preaching the gospel mean. It is, quote, preaching the gospel of, that's to say about, the Greek preposition peri, the gospel about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, Acts 8 verse 12. This is Luke's fullest summary of the gospel. He repeats it at two other critically important points in his narrative. That's to say, Acts 28, verses 23 and 31, linking it directly to Jesus' proclamation in Luke 4, verse 43. This definition of the gospel defines Luke's other shorthand statements appearing in his gospel as well as in Acts and ought to serve as a rallying point for all proclamations of the gospel. Quite extraordinarily, these texts about the gospel of the kingdom receive almost no mention in literature defining the gospel. If they were taken seriously, current, quote, gospels would be exposed as lacking a primary biblical element. The all-important fact would emerge that the apostles were no less insistent on the kingdom of God as the center of their message than Jesus had been. They were following their master faithfully, but can the same be said of evangelism in the 20th century? The gospel of Christ is an ambiguous phrase in the 20th century, though not in its New Testament context, where it is assumed to be a synonym for the gospel of the kingdom. Contemporary evangelism chooses the ambiguous label for the gospel and dispenses with its clear title as the message about the kingdom. A very misleading idea has become ingrained in much contemporary evangelism. The idea has been widely accepted that the kingdom of God was not the main emphasis of Paul's preaching, though it was the leading topic in Jesus' evangelism. One has only to read Acts 20, verse 25, to learn what Luke constantly tells us about Paul's gospel, that it was a proclamation of the kingdom of God. It is puzzling that such an obvious clue to the mind of Paul should have been so neglected. Not only does the centrality of the kingdom in Paul's message appear frequently in Luke's accounts of Paul's evangelism, it is found indirectly throughout his own writings. He reminded the Thessalonians that they had received the word 
which is Luke's synonym for the gospel of the kingdom, Luke 4, verse 43, and Luke 5, verse 1. And in so doing, they were expressing their faith in God as they, quote, waited for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 10. The theme of the return of Christ and the wrath associated with the coming of the future kingdom are exactly John the Baptist and Jesus' gospel themes. Paul then refers to his proclamation as the gospel of God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 2, 8, and 9, which is precisely the phrase used by Mark to denote Jesus' preaching of the gospel about the kingdom. Mark 1, verses 14 and 15. Almost in the same breath, Paul exhorts his converts to, quote, walk worthy of the God who is inviting you into his own kingdom and glory. It is clear that the gospel of the kingdom is at the center of Paul's thought, exactly as Luke reports that the kingdom was always the heart of Paul's gospel. Acts 19, verse 8, Acts 20, verse 25, Acts 28, verses 23 and 31. Moreover, Paul goes on to tell the Thessalonians that this word, or word of God, both synonyms for the gospel of the kingdom, was, quote, performing its work in the believers. The concept is exactly that of Jesus, who spoke of the essential saving message of the kingdom, taking root in the heart of the believer as the life-giving seed able to produce fruit. Matthew 13, verse 19 and verse 23. Another evidence of the gospel of the kingdom throughout the New Testament is provided by the term glory, which is closely related to kingdom. Matthew recalls that the mother of James and John requested for her son's close association with the Messiah in the administration of the coming kingdom. Matthew 20, verses 20 and 21. Mark reports the same event, but substitutes the word glory for kingdom. Quote, Grant that we may sit in your glory, one on the right and the other on the left. Mark 10, verse 37. Thus, when Mark speaks of the Son of Man coming in the glory of his Father, Mark 8:38, there's an immediate reference to the kingdom of God. Mark 9, verse 1. The whole discussion is closely related to Jesus' words about losing one's life for the sake of Jesus and the gospel. Mark 8, verse 35. When Paul speaks of a future glory, he always has the kingdom in mind. In Romans 8, he recognizes that Christians are, quote, heirs with Christ, and goes on to say that the sufferings of this present time are not to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Christians are rejoicing in the hope 
of glory, that's to say, the kingdom. Romans 5, verse 2. Just as Joseph of Arimathea, a Christian disciple, was waiting for the kingdom of God, so Paul sees the creation as waiting for the revealing of the sons of God, a messianic title in Romans 8, verse 19. He takes up exactly the same theme when he summarizes the faith. If we suffer with him, we shall also be kings, that is, in the kingdom, with him. 2 Timothy 2, verse 12. Salvation, inheritance of the kingdom of God, inheritance of life, or life in the coming age, ruling with the Messiah's kings and glory, are all interchangeable ways of describing the same goal of the kingdom. Paul may sometimes have chosen politically less explosive words like glory and salvation rather than kingdom. Such code words were clear to his readers, provided Paul's synonyms for kingdom are detected there is every reason to find in his epistles complete confirmation of his claim to have been a preacher of the kingdom of God, faithfully speaking for the risen Christ, whose message of the kingdom was continued in the apostles' ministries. Without an understanding of the phrase gospel of the kingdom, it is hard to see how there can be intelligent response to Jesus' first command. We are asked to, quote, repent and believe the good news about the kingdom of God. Mark 1, verses 14 and 15. That is the essence of faith. All subsequent preaching in the New Testament should be referred to this basic thesis statement about the gospel of salvation. Cut loose from Jesus' appeal for belief in the gospel of the kingdom Preaching exposes itself to the menace of a distorted and thus another gospel. That such a distortion has occurred will not be hard to see. One has only to listen to preachers of the gospel, so-called, to recognize that whatever else they may preach, there is precious little mention of the kingdom of God. This can only mean that the principal element of Jesus' proclamation has been silenced. Such a so-called muzzling of the Savior in the name of the Savior remains the baffling and disturbing feature of contemporary preaching and of the history of the Church from the earliest centuries. The Kingdom of God in relation to the death and resurrection of Jesus. The urgent demand by Jesus to, quote, repent and believe the gospel or good news of the kingdom, surely an excellent place for gospel preaching to begin. All of this implies an understanding of the term kingdom of God. While Jesus' leading phrase remains unclear, the gospel itself is obscured. Perhaps it is this uncertainty over the meaning of Jesus and his proclamation about the kingdom that has caused evangelicals to drop all reference to the kingdom of God in their definition of the gospel and to rely on what they think is a full account 
of the saving message, that is, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It is customary to appeal to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 11. I quote, Now I make known to you, brothers and sisters, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you're standing, by which also you're being saved, if you hold fast the message which I preached to you, unless you preached in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance, literally among the first, see the New American Standard Version margin, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Kephas, and then to the twelve. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. An important key to understanding Paul's fine statement about his own gospel message is found in the little phrase in Greek, en protis, amongst things of primary importance. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. The point at issue in the Corinthian letter was the resurrection of Jesus, which some of the Corinthians were beginning to doubt. As in the words, how do some among you say there's no resurrection of the dead? 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. In response to this particular crisis of belief, Paul reminds his audience that the death and resurrection of Jesus are of absolutely fundamental significance in the Christian gospel. Without the death of Jesus to gain forgiveness for all of us, and without his return from death to life through resurrection, there can be no hope of salvation in the coming kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom is nullified if, in fact, Jesus has not been raised from the dead. It is a mistake, however, to argue from this text that the facts about Jesus' death and resurrection formed the whole message of the gospel. Paul is careful to say that these central facts were preached en protis, and I'm using the modern Greek pronunciation of Greek, en protis amongst things of primary importance. This, however, was not his entire gospel. There were other things also of equal importance in the gospel, namely the announcement about the kingdom of God. You'll find that in Acts 8, verse 12, Acts 19, verse 8, Acts 20, verse 25, and Acts 28, verses 23 and 31. In addition, of course, to frequent use of synonyms like mystery, gospel, and word which cover the same ground as kingdom of God. We recall that Jesus had proclaimed the kingdom of God as the gospel long before he spoke of his death and resurrection, a fact which proves that the kingdom of God is not a synonym for the death and resurrection of Christ. For that information, see Luke 4, verse 43, and compare it with Luke 18, verses 31 to 34. 
as a leading authority notes, and I quote, neither Romans 1, verses 1 to 3, nor 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 4, is meant to be a full statement of what Paul understood by the gospel. We can see this from the fact that the death of Jesus is not mentioned in Romans 1, verses 1 and following. The gospel of Paul is identical with that which Jesus himself preached during his earthly life. Christ himself speaks in the gospel of Paul. Paul is not referring in Romans 6, 25, to his gospel added to the preaching of the risen Lord. He's emphasizing the agreement of his preaching with that of the earthly Jesus. Hence the, quote, proclamation of Jesus Christ can only mean the message which Jesus Christ proclaimed. It is evident that Paul was not, in 1 Corinthians 15, directly addressing the subject of the kingdom of God as a future event coinciding with the return of Jesus. The Corinthians had already accepted that belief as part of the gospel of salvation. Thus, Paul is able to elaborate on the already understood doctrine of the kingdom only a few verses later. Having just mentioned the future coming of Jesus, 1 Corinthians 15, 23, he speaks of the kingdom over which Jesus will preside at his coming, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 25 to 27. That kingdom, it should be carefully noted, is the kingdom which, quote, flesh and blood cannot inherit, for, quote, the perishable cannot inherit the imperishable, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. In order to enter the kingdom of God, Christians must be summoned from death at the last trumpet and be changed in the twinkling of an eye into immortal persons, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 and 52. These verses confirm, once again, the fact that the kingdom of God comes into power at the second coming. Following Jesus, Paul speaks of entering or inheriting the kingdom in the future. The kingdom has a principal place in the New Testament gospel message, in addition, of course, to the equally essential preaching of the death and resurrection of the Savior. It is a serious mishandling of the Bible to place 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 4, in conflict with the massive evidence for the central importance of the kingdom of God in the pre- and post-resurrection proclamation. As we see, and have seen repeatedly, Luke 4.43, Mark 1.14 and 15, Matthew 4, verse 17, Acts 8.12, 19.8.20 and 25, and chapter 28, 23 and 31, and so on. Once again, we must emphasize the importance of Acts 8.12, echoed in Acts 19.8 and Acts 28, verses 23 and 31. These are Luke's comprehensive summary statements 
about the gospel message. I quote, When they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, both men and women. See also Matthew 13, verse 19, and Luke 8, 12. The phrase kingdom of God frames the entire writing of Luke. For him and for the New Testament church, it was the term par excellence to denote the restoration of the land under the reign of the Messiah, as well as the urgent present necessity for converts to prepare for the high honor of ruling with the Messiah. The substitution of the word, quote, heaven for kingdom of God is a major contributing factor in a loss of clarity about the gospel of Jesus. When the language of Jesus is abandoned, the damage in terms of the loss of the mind of Jesus is untold. Such a loss, tragically, has been characteristic of the history of the development of the central Christian idea, the gospel of the kingdom, and the things concerning Jesus. Out of deference for Jesus as God's Messiah, and in obedience to his original challenge to belief in the good news of the kingdom, we must insist on defining the kingdom according to its biblical setting and restoring it to a central position in all exposition of the gospel. Can intelligent response to the gospel mean anything less? Kingship as the Christian goal. The nation of Israel had long been convinced of its high destiny in the purposes of God. As part of the covenant between the nation and its God, Israel was to enjoy a position of special privilege. I quote, If you obey my voice and hold fast to my covenant, you of all the nations shall be my very own, for all the earth is mine. I will count you a kingdom of priests, a consecrated nation. These are the words you are to speak to the sons of Israel. Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6. Israel as a whole had repeatedly failed to live up to her high calling. Nevertheless, the promise of world supremacy was reserved for a faithful remnant destined to inherit the future kingdom of God. The invitation to kingship was repeated through the prophet Isaiah. I quote, Pay attention, come to me. Listen, and your soul will live. With you I will make an everlasting covenant out of the favors promised to David. Look, I have made of you a witness to the peoples, a leader and a master of the nations. Look, you will summon a nation you never knew. Those unknown will come hurrying to you for the sake of Yahweh your God, of the Holy One of Israel, who will glorify you. That's from Isaiah chapter 55 
verses 3 to 5, as translated by the Jerusalem Bible. In the New Testament, the prospect of royal position in the kingdom is offered to the new Israel of the church, Galatians 6, verse 16, gathered from both Jews and Gentiles. We've already referred to Jesus' own assurance to the faithful church. Quote, those who prove victorious, I will allow you to share my throne just as I was victorious myself and took my place with my father on his throne. To those who prove victorious and keep working for me until the end, I will give the authority over the pagans, which I myself have been given by my father, to rule them with an iron scepter and shatter them like earthenware. This prospect gave rise to the Christian so-called slogan found in 2 Timothy 2 verse 12. If we suffer with him, we shall also reign as kings with him. In Revelation 2 verse 26, Jesus quotes the celebrated Messianic Psalm 2, one of many which describe the glories of the future kingdom of God. It will be initiated by a decisive intervention by God, sending his Messiah to crush political rebellion and establish a new government in Jerusalem. The fact that appeal is made to this psalm too in the book of Revelation shows that the traditional messianic hope was taken over into Christianity with full approval of Jesus himself. I quote, Why this uproar among the nations? Why this impotent muttering of pagans, kings on earth, rising in revolt, princes plotting against Yahweh and his anointed Messiah. Now let us break their fetters. Now let us throw off their yoke. The one whose throne is in heaven sits laughing. Yahweh derides them. Then angrily he addresses them in a rage. He strikes them with panic. This is my king, installed by me on Zion, my holy mountain. Another quotation from the same psalm. Let me proclaim Yahweh's decree. He has said and told me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask, and I will give the nations for your heritage, the ends of the earth for your domain. With an iron scepter you will break them and shatter them like potters wear. So now, you kings, learn wisdom. Earthly rulers, be warned. Serve Yahweh, fear him, tremble and kiss his feet or he will be angry and you will perish. For his anger is very quick to blaze. Happy are all who take shelter in him. As from Psalm 2, the Jerusalem Bible. The promise of, quote, the ends of the earth for your domain is reflected in Jesus' own claim 
to the, quote, authority which I myself have been given by my Father. Revelation 2, verse 26. The same theme is taken up by the angelic chorus when they sing of the faithful who, quote, shall rule as kings on the earth. Revelation 5, verse 10. And in the famous millennial passage, which foresees the saints ruling with the Messiah for a thousand years. Revelation 20, verses 4 to 6. Recentering on Jesus as the Messiah. Any plan for the uniting of churches misses the point unless it concerns itself with the recovery of the divine message in its apostolic form. A Catholic writer senses the weakness of schemes aimed at revitalizing the churches apart from a clarification of the good news. I quote, The main thrust of renewal in the church has proceeded on the basis of presupposing that the basic Christian message has been effectively appropriated by the Christian people. The saving message, the kirigma, or gospel, has not been effectively understood or appropriated by the church as a whole. That's from Ralph Martin in his book, Unless the Lord Build the House, written in 1971. It has been too hastily assumed that the gospel has been understood. The possibility of, quote, another gospel, another Jesus, and another spirit being preached and presented in Christianity has not been given enough attention. As long as the subject matter of the New Testament good news is in question, all other considerations are peripheral. Parallel to the definition of the gospel is the question of the biblical identity of Jesus. Another Catholic writer goes to the heart of the problem when he states, and I quote, The Christian attitude in relation to messianism is rather strange. Christians believe in a personal Messiah. Notwithstanding this belief, they are far less messianically minded than the Jews. Christians have largely lost the sense of Jesus' messiahship. And they have largely also lost the messianic vision. The Greek name Christos, meaning the anointed, and is the literal translation of the Hebrew Mashiach, Messiah. Now the idea of the anointed is a specifically Jewish idea. It fell decidedly into the background when Christianity left its Palestinian home and became a Gentile religion. Christians who think of or speak of Christ almost forget the Semitic word and the ideas which the name translates. In fact, they forget that Jesus is primarily the Messiah. The very idea of Jesus' Messiahship has passed from their minds. Having lost the original sense of the word Christ, 
many Christians have also lost the messianic vision, that is, the expectation of the divine future, the orientation towards, quote, what is coming on earth as the denouement of the present era of history. That's from Lev Gillet, Communion in the Messiah, Studies in the Relationship Between Judaism and Christianity, written in 1942 and cited by Hugh Schoenfield in his book, The Politics of God. This perceptive commentator might have added that the Christian gospel is intimately bound up with the messianic vision. The loss of the latter means the loss of the gospel. Of all Satan's attempts to corrupt the Christian faith, none could be as insidious as the plan to replace the Jesus of the good news with another Jesus. History records that this very method was tried on the church at Corinth. It was effectively thwarted when Paul unmasked its exponents as ministers of Satan, masquerading as ministers of the Christian faith. Serious thought ought to be given to the possibility that popular preaching may have succumbed to some of the tendencies against which Paul warned. If we ask a man to believe in John Baker, we give very little idea of what that belief entails. If, however, we urge faith in John the Baker, we have given a much clearer definition of the object of belief. Similarly, it will be quite ineffective to invite belief in Jesus Christ unless a full account is given of the term Christ. Otherwise, we shall not know whom we are being asked to believe in. Preaching can so easily become lost in a dust cloud of vagueness and generality. The confirmation of the genuineness of Peter's discipleship depended upon this very question of the true identity of Jesus. A correct so-called Christology became the foundational principle of the church. This rock, as the Bible reads, i.e., the recognition of Jesus as Messiah or Son of God, was the essential basis of the faith as Jesus expanded it. Peter's reply was to a test question. Whom do you say that I am? And the answer which proved the soundness of his understanding was, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Matthew 16, verses 16 to 18. In Peter's mind, the name Messiah was invested with a rich complex of associated ideas drawn from the Hebrew Scriptures. The Messiah was to be the last in a long line of divinely appointed priests, prophets, and kings. In him alone, the ideal of kingship would be fully realized. The claim of Jesus to be the Messiah 
was based on his identity with the Messiah promised in the divine revelation provided by the Hebrew Bible. This is shown repeatedly in the New Testament by Jesus' constant reference to the fulfillment of the sacred writings in himself. It is therefore utterly impossible, without destroying his own credibility, that he could have made a valid claim to messiahship on any other basis than the one outlined by the Hebrew Scriptures. A claim to be a messiah different from the one upon whom the whole divine plan was built would have been evidently false. If, as our quotation suggests, quote, Christians have forgotten that Jesus is primarily messiah, the very idea of messiahship has passed from their minds, then we must ask whether they can truly be called messianists, that is, followers of Jesus in the New Testament sense. The question is of first importance, since all are agreed that salvation is possible only by belief in Jesus, the Messiah. If Jesus has been replaced by another Jesus, the real Savior will not be preached, and the whole process of salvation will have been rendered ineffective. The claim to Messiahship was revolutionary in the extreme. The Messiah was to supervise a world government and rule in power and justice from Jerusalem, renewed and restored. It is this fact which makes the New Testament, and indeed the whole Bible, a thoroughly political document. It was for his claim to messiahship that Jesus was put to death. The threat of political upheaval was too great. The point is that the Christianity of Jesus promised a divine intervention to put a stop to injustice on earth. A new world order was the great driving force behind the good news of the kingdom. In the minds of many in our time, the prospect of the return of Jesus in glory sounds like a piece of science fiction, and this we rate with popular light entertainment having little to do with the real world. Much of contemporary theology, seeing the difficulty, proposes that whatever in the Bible does not make sense to modern man can be disregarded as belonging to the superstitions of a former age. Following the dictates of the, quote, modern scientific view, Jesus' personal battle against the unseen but for him very real forces of Satan and his demons must not detract so they say, from our acceptance of his central message of love and tolerance. As for his promise to return as king and judge, that can satisfactorily be explained away as the invention of his overexcited followers. The idea cannot have originated with him, so it is said. All we need to do is to reinterpret what we call the primitive beliefs 
of the first century disciples in the light of our vastly superior understanding of the 20th and 21st centuries. The notion that we are reinterpreting the New Testament when we discard the teaching about the second coming disguises the real fact that we are abandoning faith in Jesus, Messiah, altogether. We are losing sight of the central proclamation of the New Testament that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised King, in whom alone the chaos of the present world system can find its solution. The preaching of Jesus as Savior, without reference to his appointment to the office of King over a renewed earth, runs the risk of being a preaching of another Jesus. Messiahship, with all that that means in its New Testament context, is the one indispensable ingredient of the faith which must not be abandoned. The point is made repeatedly in the New Testament. If the churches are to unite, it can only be on the basis of a recovery of the messianic vision the expectation of the divine future. The Church has been placed in the world to offer to struggling humanity the prospect of better things to come, the guaranteed triumph of good over evil, but a solution to be realized in some far-off realm removed from the earth is no solution at all. Apart from the messianic kingdom, the kingdom of God on earth, there is no hope for the world. From a study of the New Testament documents, it will not be difficult to ascertain that Jesus is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. He is the expression of the eternal divine plan for the creation of the new race of immortals and a harmonious universe. Having been uniquely conceived under the influence of the divine spirit, yet taking the role of the servant of mankind, he gathered around him a group of followers, believers in his messiahship. In his message or gospel of the kingdom of God, the promises and covenants of the Old Testament were confirmed and the divine future was declared. He suffered the death penalty at the hands of his unbelieving compatriots whose traditional religious systems had blinded them to the truth of their own scriptures and Jesus' teaching. The Roman authorities were also glad to be rid of one claiming to be king. The resurrection was proof of his appointment as God's Messiah, and creation now awaits his manifestation in power to assume the royal office for which he has been destined. Associated with him in his royal administration will be those who have believed in his claim to messiahship and followed him at all costs. Those who survive until the moment of his coming will be immortalized without dying. 
those who have died as believers will awake from the sleep of death and share immortality with the whole company of true believers. The challenge to every man is to believe that in Jesus the one God of Israel has spoken, to believe in the divine plan for the rescue of the human race and in Jesus as Messiah, to repent and be baptized, trusting in the sacrificial, atoning death of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, and within the power of divine spirit operating as a ministry of the risen Christ, to live worthily of the high calling to the kingdom of God. If such were taken to be the faith of the early church, and the faith of all ages, disputes over premillennialism versus amillennialism would not need to continue for a moment longer. The prospect of the reign of Jesus and all the saints, described in Revelation 20, must lie in the future as the early church believed, for the simple reason that the saints who have died cannot possibly now be active in the messianic reign. They must therefore come to life in the resurrection to take their place with all the saints in the divine kingdom of the coming age. This is exactly what Revelation 20 describes and is one of the astonishing phenomena of contemporary evangelical theology that there could be any doubt on that question. Theories about the validity of prayer to the saints or to Mary would be seen as empty illusions. Once it is grasped that no New Testament Christian held that the dead were really alive. The gullible would also be protected from the cults of spiritism which early Christians would have viewed simply as demonism. All such errors connected with the, quote, departed soul would have been avoided, as long as the biblical Hebrew view of the nature of man was maintained. The introduction of the notion of the separable conscious soul, unable to die, must be seen for what it is, the disaster from which the churches have yet to recover, and a fatal distortion of her prophetic message. The banishment of Greek philosophical speculation from the creeds will quickly put the resurrection and the second coming back into the central position they enjoy in New Testament writings. Along these lines, the way back to the divine message will be found and the way forward to the United Church will be made plain. In this way also the Jews, who do not believe in Jesus, as commonly preached, deterred often by the unscriptural teachings of the Church, they may be persuaded to accept their Messiah, son of the one God of Jewish monotheism, and the Christians whose ideas about the Messiah are often quite unmessianic, may be united with them. 
An extraordinary harmony and beauty emerges when the Bible is read as a messianic document celebrating the arrival, past and future, of Jesus as the central messianic figure. Kingship was lost in Eden, but kingship will be regained in the Eden of the land and the earth restored. Even the oceans of theological words written to avoid the messianic drama of the Bible cannot erase the simple truth that once Scripture's kingdom key is applied to the text, with kingdom understood firstly within its Jewish Hebrew environment, then the Bible's treasures are unlocked.